So my lecture tonight is called Steadfast Love, Finding Secure Attachment with God. Uh, and to start this off, I want everybody to close their eyes for a minute. Close your eyes and do an imaginative exercise. This isn't going to be too hippy dippy, mm -hmm. but close your eyes and I want you to imagine that God is looking at you. You might not have a very clear picture of what he looks like and you might not even believe in God, but I just try to imagine whatever your conception of what God might be, that he's looking at you and thinking about you. So what kind of expression are you imagining on God's face? What thoughts do you instinctively feel are going through God's head about you? Donna, I see that your eyes aren't closed, so. <laughs> <laughs> so I want you to hold on to that image. You can open your eyes now. Um, and, and, and just keep that in your mind because it's gonna come in handy later on. And tonight we're gonna be talking about attachment theory. Let's take a show of hands. Who has heard of attachment theory other than me talking about it <laughs> like today? Okay, so we know which side of the room to ask questions. Yeah, the back. <laughs> um, so attachment theory is basically about how we experience separation and connection in our relationships, how we bond with each other and how we feel when those bonds are threatened. And learning about attachment theory has been really revolutionary for me. I first started looking into it a couple of years ago at, when I experienced this kind of anxious spiral in a few of my friendships. And I couldn't understand why I was feeling so fearful and insecure. There was this moment where I realized I don't really trust anyone not to leave me. I wondered, why do I always feel that way, even when it's not logical? What's wrong with me? <laughs> don't answer that. <laughs> uh, then I picked up a book on attachment theory, which is appropriately called Attached. <laughs> and uh, as I read, so many things began to make sense for me. It was like someone was eavesdropping on my soul, my inner dialogue since I was a kid. It was that sort of elated, elated and yet gut-wrenching feeling of being like, check, 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 check. Oh, something's really wrong with me. <laughs> but also there's like, there's some language for it, which is kind of a, a good and a bad feeling. Um, and I, I recalled various experiences I'd had of feeling abandoned and rejected and the assumption that I still carried that this would be the outcome of relationships, even when I cognitively knew that somebody was committed to me. But I realized that this went farther than just human relationships. I'd been told over and over that God was supposed to be my primary source of security, but I often felt abandoned and rejected by God as well. I'd spent so much energy, even in childhood, anxiously monitoring my spiritual life, afraid that if I did the wrong thing, God would withdraw from me. I had to keep his interest and earn his closeness. When I heard about other people's experiences of secure intimacy with God, I felt ashamed, like I'd done something wrong. So God didn't want to be close with me. Or maybe part of me was broken, so that God couldn't be close. It's kind of weighty thoughts for a child, <laughs> even. But it turns out that I was actually onto something with that last thought. We have two kinds of knowledge about God, doctrinal and experiential. So we can believe all the right things about God doctrinally, but our experience can tell us something totally different. Yes, I believed that God loved me and had chosen me, but I felt that God was rejecting my attempts to reach him. And when I did the thought experiment that you just did, I saw God as a judge with a long list of all the ways I was failing to measure up. 
Well, I knew that this was wrong theologically and I told myself that, well, that's not true. Um, and this just made me feel worse because I couldn't believe the right things um, in, in, my, in my experience. I couldn't experience the things the way that I believed them. Um, on a gut level, this was just how I felt and no amount of theology could change it. So attachment theory has been really crucial for me in understanding and healing from this way of experiencing God. What I've come to see is that our early experiences of connection and separation form us deeply, and in turn, they shape how we experience our relationship with God. So I, I hope and pray that if you're listening tonight and you struggle in your attachment with God, that this way of thinking will shed some light on what might be going on for you. So here's what this talk is going to look like. First, I'm going to give you a crash course on attachment theory, just to lay the groundwork for understanding. And this is, in one sense, a doctrinal knowledge but we need that theological basis to understand what kind of God we're supposed to be attaching to and how he attaches with us. And finally, I'm going to move into the experiential. So how we can live into a secure attachment with God and with each other. Um, and before I, I start, I want to mention a few resources that have been particularly influential for me. Uh, you can write them down if you're interested in, in doing some homework later. So one is the book attached, which I already mentioned. It's kind of a layman's primer on attachment theory um, it's, it's written from a secular perspective and it kind of really focuses on romantic relationships. Um, what's that? What's the name again? Attached. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's, but it's an easy way to kind of, um, get into it a bit. Uh, another is a Christian counseling podcast called the place we find ourselves. And it has a number of episodes on attachment, including one on how we attach with God. Uh, also an article called attachment theory in your relationship with God. Um, by psychologist Bonnie Poonzal. I can tell you how to spell her name later if you want. Um, that's been very helpful for me. And finally, my colleague at English Liberty, uh, Maren Paul, she has a background in psychology and she was the first person I asked about how attachment style affects our spiritual lives. And she has some lectures on attachment you can listen to as well online. So those are all resources you could check out if you're interested after this talk. I'll try and make you interested enough to check them out. Uh, okay, so... First, let's talk about attachment theory, attachment theory 101. I'm gonna simplify this quite a bit because I don't have that much space, but this should be enough to get us going. So I wanna to say to start that attachment theory isn't just a fringe psychological idea for wackos. <laughs> uh, it actually has a lot of research behind it and it's foundational for a lot of therapy today. Once I started learning about it, I encountered it everywhere and I was really surprised that I'd never heard of it before. Um, Psychologists first began developing attachment theory in the 40s and 50s around how infants bonded with their mothers or their primary caregivers. And they discovered that bonding with especially one individual helps infants to thrive. Even if infants have all of their physical needs met, if bonding is not intact, they're not going to develop properly. You might have heard of these experiments done in orphanages or well, testing. I don't know if they were experimenting, but these kids that really didn't receive that kind of face-to-face -face contact that had their physical needs cared for, but they really deteriorated because they didn't have that, that kind of attunement. In the 70s, researchers performed a well-known experiment called the strange situation test. So in the experiment, a mother and her young child entered a room that contained toys and a research assistant. So the mother would play with the child, then after a while, she would leave the room. The research assistant would then attempt to engage with the child and after a little while, the mother would come back. Researchers observed how the child responded to the mother's return. And they noticed three main types of responses. 
Some children ran to their mothers to be comforted and they were quickly able to calm down once the mother reassured them. The second set also looked for soothing, but they weren't able to calm down with a normal amount of comforting. They continued to be agitated and crying, clinging. Some even seemed angry with their mothers. The third set of children seemed indifferent to their mother's reappearance, but contrary to the external appearance, their heart rate actually went up. And these three responses indicate three different forms of attachment. So the first is secure. This is the ideal state in which the child seeks comfort and is able to receive it and calm down. The second is anxious or ambivalent attachment where the child wants comfort, but can't receive it. The third is avoidant where the child prefers to comfort herself rather than try to receive soothing from her caregiver. There are other categories that have also been explored, but they're less common. So I'm not going to get into them tonight. It just complicates things a bit. Um, and I also just want to mention that people use different terms for these forms of attachment, but I find that anxious avoidant and secure seem the most straightforward. So attachment theory tells us that infants need caregivers who are consistently attuned to their needs and are able to respond appropriately to soothe and to contain their emotions. Babies do not know how to soothe themselves. They need an adult to regulate them. Right, Martin and Linda? <laughs> so not only do they need their caregiver to take care of the practical needs like feeding them and changing their diapers, they also need attunement where their parents or caregivers face and voice and actions respond appropriately to their emotional cues. Without these needs being met, children will not be able to properly bond with their caregivers and they will struggle to receive comfort effectively. So this is how attachment works in early childhood. But what about adults? Well, it turns out that we don't actually stop needing attachment when we grow up. Researchers have discovered that attachment functions in a similar way in adult relationships, especially in romantic relationships. So some people are able to express a need for intimacy and receive someone's closeness, whereas others long for connection and reassurance, but they spiral into anxiety over any sign that the relationship might be threatened. A third group struggles to be vulnerable and to allow others to know and get close to them. Again, these types represent secure, anxious, and avoidant attachment status. And ironically, uh, anxious and avoidant types most often end up dating and marrying each other, so that they both kind of reaffirm each other's fears of being abandoned or smothered. Great. <laughs> <laughs> both anxious and avoidant attachers have learned that they can't depend on others for comfort and connection. So avoidance become these lone wolves preferring to take care of themselves and not depend on anyone else too much. Anxious attachers constantly monitor the rela relationships to maintain closeness, convinced that the people they love are likely to abandon them at any moment. Both feel that relationships can't be trusted to provide stability. So how is our attachment style formed? As a study with infants showed, attachment style can be set very early on so typically someone who ends up being avoidant had a primary caregiver who wasn't responsive to her needs as a child. Somebody who's anxiously attached typically had a caregiver who was inconsistently responsive. So sometimes able to provide comfort, sometimes not. And actually, typically the parent or caregiver would depend on her child to comfort her instead. So the child became the parent to the parent in some sense. 
The avoidant child learned to soothe herself because the parent couldn't do it, while the anxious child learned to attune to and soothe his parent, suppressing his own needs for comfort. Does that make sense? The question is, yes. so the, which one was it with the parent that was looking to the child? That's the anxious, anxious. child. The child would end up with anxious attachment. But this is not the whole story. Um, I wish we could blame our parents for everything. <laughs> Makes life so much easier. But there's research suggesting that attachment style might be genetic for some people, actually. And personality can be an influence as well, some of which is set before we're born. Uh, so if you look at a personality typing system like Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram, <laughs> you'll quickly see that the characteristics of certain types really read like a textbook description of anxious or avoidant attachment. Um, one of my friends was reading my personality type description that I sent to him. He's like, isn't that just anxious attachment? And I was like, no. <laughs> um, so, and events later in life can also change one's attachment style. So somebody with a secure attachment style can become avoidant or anxious if they go through something traumatic later in life. But by the same token, somebody with an insecure attachment style, regardless of their personality, can move towards security. Yay, we can change to become more securely attached. Um, the question that this begs and the question that I have begged for myself is how, how do we do this? How do we move towards secure attachment? Well, our Western culture has this tendency to emphasize independence and self-sufficiency. We love stories about people who set off to survive in the wilderness alone. Sometimes they die. <laughs> we praise a lifestyle that leaves us free to pick up our bags and at any time and connect with whomever we want, however we want. The open road is our culture's holy grail. The mountains are calling and I must go. <laughs> but attachment theory tells us that trying to be fully independent is a terribly unhealthy goal. We do need some independence, but we also need interdependence too. The pandemic has helped to show us, I think very starkly, that we do in fact need community and close relationships. So many of us really struggled without that, even if we're not an extrovert. But with freedom and choice as our culture's greatest goods, we don't have much practice in forming these stable, committed ties. Well, the book Attached posits that we find secure attachment by practicing secure traits, such as effective communication, and ideally finding a romantic relationship with somebody who already has a secure attachment style. So dip them while you can. <laughs> but does this mean that there's no hope for us singles or for those in a relationship with somebody who has an insecure attachment style? And even if you have secure attachment in your romantic relationship, will that be enough? Well, human relationships are very important for a secure relating, and I'm gonna talk more about that. But if they become our only way of finding security, they can easily become what we worship. Then when our friend or parent or partner doesn't live up to our expectations or needs for reassurance, we can be crushed and angry. The person we once loved can become our enemy. And for whatever reason, sometimes we go through seasons where we're not able to have secure human relationships. So we need something more than just each other for stable connections. And I believe that the Christian God is unique in his capacity to provide us with secure attachment. So in the next section, we'll look at how God created us with attachment needs and created us for primary attachment with him. We'll see God as an example of secure attachment in his nature and his actions throughout history. So this doctrinal knowledge is foundational for understanding the kind of attachment that we're meant to develop with God. So God and attachment. Our secure attachment with God is deeply important to him. 
In Rankin Wilburn's book, Union with Christ, he notes that the Bible is the grand story of God restoring our communion with him. The Bible is the grand story of God restoring our communion with him. Psychologist Bonnie Poonzal points out that the story of our sin, alienation from God, and reunion through grace is a profound parallel to attachment theory, which is all about separation, distress, and the comfort that reconnection brings. So secure attachment isn't actually so much about never being separated, but it's about how we reconnect after separation. And one of the ways that we can read the grand story of scripture is that of God teaching us, both as his people and individuals, how to become securely attached to him. I want to look at how God's very character is a demonstration of secure attachment. And it's important for us to realize that God is neither avoidant nor anxious. People with an avoidant attachment style naturally fear being consumed by others, while people who tend towards anxious attachment fear being abandoned. So when it comes to our relationship with God, we need to know two things. We need to be reassured that God is attuned to us and he holds us securely. But we also need to know that God doesn't force or coerce us. So first, how do we see God's non-avoidance? Well, the images that God uses to describe himself in scripture are very often ones around attachment. Over and over again, the Lord is described as full of steadfast love. God is the faithful lover who pursues his faithless beloved. Israel is an abandoned child that God has pity on. In Jeremiah, God says of Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion on him. Throughout the Bible, God demonstrates his steadfast love by making covenants with his people. God makes a covenant with Noah to protect humanity. He makes a covenant with Abraham to give him land and to bless all nations through his offspring. He makes a covenant with Moses, giving him the law and setting the Israelites apart as his people. He makes a covenant with David, promising that one of David's descendants would reign forever. And finally, he gives us a new covenant through Jesus, reconciling us to God. That separation becomes secure attachment. So why did God use covenants? Why did he not just tell us to trust and obey him and leave it at that? Trust and obey. There is no other way. <laughs> Many people claim of marriage that it's just a piece of paper and that commitment shouldn't require tying each other down. But God knows our limitations. He knows that when the going gets rough, we need promises to hold on to, promises with force behind them. And he chose his people Israel and he has chosen us through Jesus. But it's easy to forget that. God's covenants help us to know that he's not going anywhere. And when our own feelings falter, the covenant we've agreed to helps us to stay the course. So covenants are an important part of secure attachment. They allow us to stop worrying whether the other person will leave or stop wondering if we'd be better off somewhere else. Sure, we might think these things, but we know that we're committed for better or for worse. Of course, it's often hard for us to understand the reality of God's commitment to us, given how flimsy human covenants have become. Abandonment by parents and spouses happens far too often. But that doesn't determine the reality of God's faithfulness to us. If you think about it, it's really incredible that the God of everything would choose to bind himself to us to limit himself to keeping his covenants. God chose something better than complete untethered freedom. He chose relationship with us. 
One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 103, describes God as a father with a secure attachment style. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. God isn't vindictive trying to get revenge on us. He's compassionate towards our weaknesses. He's attuned to our needs and he intervenes to care for us. And in Jesus, we see this ultimate act of non-avoidance. Rather than stay far off, up on a cloud, watching human suffering with complacency, God enters right into the muck of our suffering and takes it on himself. He comes to close the gap in our relationship. And then we get to live out of a new reality of the most kind of secure attachment imaginable, which is union with Christ. And I'm going to say more about that later. Now, I'm giving this lecture as someone who's recovering from an anxious attachment style, but does the Bible give reassurance for avoidance too? Problem that I have with some of the literature on attachment theory is that it, it puts most of the blame on avoidance and gives little room for the importance of independence. So it's trying to correct society's emphasis on individualism, I think, but in doing so, it misses the other side of the coin. We are made for each other, but for solitude and for personal agency too. So how can we see God as creating us not only for dependence, but for independence? Well, ideally a child learns slowly to grow in his skills and to take on new responsibilities until one day he moves out of his parents' basement and maybe eventually starts his own family. <laughs> um, but today we often speak of the problem of helicopter parenting where children don't have any opportunity to take risks or to make mistakes. Children's brains are actually primed to need risk to grow. So when parents are overprotective, children don't get the necessary developmental input and they're stunted. I have a, one friend whose mom gave him very little space when he was growing up. And as a result, he finds it really hard to trust other people and to give them access to his inner life. He didn't have a lot of choice about ma maintaining his privacy as a child. So now he clings to it as an adult. So is God a helicopter parent like this? If he's a, actually a good father, how does he show us that he values our own agency as well? So first we see that in the creation story, God doesn't just do everything for Adam and Eve. He invites them to be sub-creators, exercising dominion. And this happens over time. They name the animals and they tend the garden. They're meant to go forth and multiply to create babies and culture. God doesn't just hand them flutes and computers and vaccines. It happens over time. They wouldn't know what to, how to work a computer anyways. Um, and secondly, we see that God allows humans to make choices for or against him. He, he allows Adam and Eve to eat the fruit, even though he knows it's going to bring disaster. And in the rest of scripture, God shows up to people in many different ways, but they always have the choice whether or not to respond. He never takes away their free will or makes them into a puppet. Denise Levertov has a beautiful poem about the Annunciation when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary. So this is a little excerpt I want to read. I always like to get a poem into my lectures. Mm -hmm. Aren't there Annunciations of one sort or another in most lives? Some unwillingly undertake great destinies, enact them in sullen pride, uncomprehending. More often those moments when roads of light and storm open from darkness in a man or woman are turned away from in dread, in a wave of weakness, in despair and with relief. Ordinary lives continue. God does not smite them, but the gates close the pathway vanishes. 
So Mary was the perfect example of saying yes to a God who didn't coerce her. God gives us the opportunity to partner with him in bringing about his kingdom, but he doesn't force us. The choice is ours. We think about the Greek gods who are very much more forceful in how they uh, brought their children to earth. The very nature of God demonstrates secure attachment. God is Trinity, three in one. That means that God is securely attached within himself. He is inherently relational, and he was before we ever came along. So what does this mean for us? Because we're created in God's image, we're made for relationship too. We're not meant to be lone wolves. We are made to be attached, to be interdependent. But God as Trinity also tells us something else. God doesn't need us. God already has secure relationships. So he doesn't have to anxiously cling to us, demanding that we fill his needs. God's pursuing isn't forceful or manipulative. And this is also the pattern for our relationships, compassionate invitation rather than coercion or force. In the cross of Jesus, we see both non-avoidance and non-anxiety. Jesus didn't need people to like him. He was willing to face his death with bravery, even when his friends abandoned him. He had his eyes set on a greater goal. So we see that God's character appeals to our need for both dependence and interdependence. But God will also push at our avoidance as well as our anxiety. And it's been true for me. He does not give us only what we want, but also what we need. So he asks the anxious person to trust his goodness, even when he seems distant. He asks the avoidance to allow him to come close, even when they'd rather be private and run their own lives. God's character can both reassure us and challenge us in our attachment style. Okay, so now we are getting to a section on abiding in Christ, as I said I would talk about. Um, and as I've mentioned, your attachment style will almost certainly affect the way that you experience your relationship with God. So let's go back for a moment to the thought experiment. We tried at the beginning of this talk where I asked you to imagine God looking at you. Um, so Bonnie Poonzal says that if we discover a conflict between our doctrinal knowledge and our experiential knowledge. So maybe you, you recognize that in the way that you imagine God looking at you, that something about that does not reflect the theological truth that you believe. Um, if we discover this conflict between our doctrinal knowledge and our experiential knowledge, there's a good chance that attachment patterns are at work. Interesting. This means that we should be patient and compassionate with ourselves when we can't internalize what we know to be true theoretically. So what might our spiritual lives look like based on our attachment styles? Here are a few generalizations and they are in general that you might resonate with. So if you're anxiously attached, there's a good chance that you worry a lot about your attachment with God, working hard to earn his favor, experiencing a lot of ups and downs and seasons where God feels totally absent. If you're avoidant, you're more likely to have kind of a cerebral, heady relationship with God and expect him to feel absent. And this is more comfortable for you than depending on God or letting him into your really deep longings. So as we've seen in the Bible, um, oh, just <laughs> there we go. yeah, as we've seen, uh, God calls us into a covenantal relationship with him that requires trust, something that people with insecure attachment lack. So both lack, lack trust, both uh, anxious and avoidant. So is there a way that both anxious and avoidant attachment types can move towards security with God? So I want to look at this concept of abiding in Christ as the underlying basis for secure attachment, both to God and in our human relationships. And 
we're going to spend some time with first john chapter four it's kind of a long section i'm going to read it and then i'll kind of unpack it for you beloved let us love one another for love is from god and whoever loves has been born of god and knows god anyone who does not love does not know god because god is love in this the love of god was made manifest among us that god sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him and this is love not that we have loved god but that god has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins beloved if god so loved us we also ought to love one another no one has ever seen god if we love one another god abides in us and his love is perfected in us by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So there's a lot to unpack in this passage. Probably most of us have heard it before, read it before, uh, but there are three things that I wanna look at here. First, what does God's love look for us? look like for us look like in light of attachment and secondly how do we relate to god in that love third how does our relationship with god extend to our human relationships the first is god's love for us the passage keeps telling us that god is the initiator of love we don't have to earn his love or work up our own love for him anxiously and this is love not that we loved god but that he loved us we love because he first loved us so our love is always only a response to the love that God has shown us first. If you have an anxious attachment style, this is great news. You don't have to constantly be worrying about losing or earning God's love. If you're more avoidant, this proves that God is capable of love regardless of what you do for him. He doesn't need you to love him for him to love you back. And what this love looks like in action is Jesus coming into the world, choosing to be near us and to suffer with us and for us. And as I said before, this is the epitome of non-avoidance. Jesus experienced attachment in his relationships on earth and the pain of being deserted by his friends and left alone on the cross. He actually understands what it's like to fa face separation and abandonment, not just theoretically, but personally. He also knows the joy of reunion, that even death can't separate us from the God who loves us. Not only this, but God has given us the Holy Spirit in us, closer even than Jesus walking the earth in the flesh. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of the Spirit. So the Spirit is a sign and the means of us abiding in Christ. This is a quote from the Rankin-Wilburn book. Um, Becoming a Christian means more than believing Christ did certain things for you long ago. It means that Christ joins his life to yours in such an intimate and comprehensive way that the prevailing metaphor for this union in the Bible is marriage. It's a metaphor, but it's not only a metaphor because the Holy Spirit, the bond of this connection is not metaphorical. 
the Holy Spirit is real, which means that if you are in Christ, Christ has truly made himself one with you, end quote. So abiding is the form of our relationship with God. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And this is a really beautiful image, one that we don't ponder often enough. What could be a more secure attachment than this? We are in God, and God is in us. This is something I've thought a lot about as I process my own attachment issues. He is at home in us, and we are at home in him. It's really incredible to me both that God would want to make his home in us and that we're invited to make our home in him. Jesus uses this language in John 14. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him. And we will come to him, and we will make our home in him. How beautiful and mysterious is that? When I was first working through some of my own attachment issues, <laughs> and I was like, wow, I've got so many problems and I don't know what to do. I was really encouraged by reading the English medieval mystic Julian of Norwich. She experienced major upheaval in her society and personal life. At least half of her hometown was destroyed by the Black Death, likely including her husband and children. She herself almost died. There were rioting peasants and political upheaval. And as an anchorite, she was essentially self-isolating for most of her life in a small room on the side of the church. Plague, riots, politics, and isolation. Does this feel at all relatable? Um, but Julian had this deep conviction of her secure attachment to God, that he made, loves, and keeps all creation. And she even used the metaphor of God as a mother who quickly responds to her child's distress. Julian beautifully expresses our union with God. Here's a quote. The high goodness of the Trinity is our Lord, and in him we are enclosed, and he in us. We are enclosed in the Father, and we are enclosed in the Son, and we are enclosed in the Holy Ghost. And the Father is enclosed in us, and the Son is enclosed in us, and the Holy Ghost is enclosed in us. Almightiness, all wisdom, all goodness, one God, one Lord. Wow. <laughs> so this doesn't mean that we enclose God in the same sense as God encloses us, because of course God is far greater than we are, but it does mean that there's this mutual indwelling that's the epitome of intimacy more than any human relationship could ever provide. And we see what effect this secure attachment has in us. Perfect love casts out fear. Very often quoted verse. So as I've said before, the root of insecure attachment is a lack of trust, whether you're anxious or avoidant. And it involves fear, either the fear of abandonment or the fear of being smothered. There is no perfect human love from our parents, our spouses, or our friends. Only God's perfect love can drive out those fears. There is no fear in love. So with perfect love, we don't fear losing closeness and we don't fear being suffocated or being drained by neediness. We will fail to love God perfectly, but that doesn't mean that he's going to withhold his love from us. Though God meets the longings of both people with anxious and avoidant attachment, he also challenges both. So the anxious attacher needs to learn to trust God even when he seems absent. And the avoidant needs to allow God to come into the locked secret rooms of his heart and trust that God will give more than he takes. There's no perfect love from human beings, but that doesn't mean that we should just reject human love. John says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Do you see that connection? There's a semicolon there. No one has ever seen God, semicolon. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So the way we love each other makes God's invisible love visible. This is not optional. 
So I want to take a bit of time to talk about how attachment with God relates to our human relationships. Since learning about attachment theory, I've noticed that some people might be quite anxious or avoidant in their human relationships, but they seem to have a secure trusting bond with God. And this really puzzled me at first um, because it seemed to contradict what I've experienced and read about how our attachment style with God mirrors our attachment style with people. And I've heard friends say things like, people let me down, but God never does. So I, I just go to him for my needs. Well, there's something about this that sounds right. How often have you heard somebody say or imply, God is all you need? How often have you thought that if you were better or more spiritual, you wouldn't need other people so much? Have you ever wondered if meeting other people means that you're making an idol out of them? I've definitely had these thoughts a lot of times. But actually, God creates us for human relationships. How do we know this? First, as we've discussed, God is Trinity. He's relational and we're created in his image. But God relates within himself in a way that we can't relate to him. God has made us to relate to him, yes, but also to relate to others who are the same as us. In the Garden of Eden, God looked at this beautiful, wonderful world he's created and he said, something's missing. Adam had this perfect intimacy with God, not broken by sin or shame, but something was still missing. It was not good for Adam to be alone, <laughs> to be without human relationships. If God is all we need, why did God say it's not good for Adam to be alone? And when Eve arrived on the scene, Adam rejoiced that she was bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. He delighted in her sameness, a sameness that God and Adam didn't share. Adam and Eve also experienced an embodied relationship between two physical beings, something that God can't provide directly to us. God chose to make us physical beings, and he called that good. He could have made us spirits floating around, but he didn't. He made us physical. And he created us with attachment systems that need other people to regulate us. Not interesting, in part through physical touch. So when one of our attachment figures is present, they can actually slow our heart rate and even help us feel less physical pain. They did these tests where someone would be holding their partner's hand when they were getting whatever electric shock or some kind of pain. I don't know why people sign up for these tests, honestly. <laughs> uh, and, and when they were holding the hand, they, they, their heart rate was much slower. They felt less pain. So these aren't faulty parts of our wiring. These are gifts from God. We're made for relationship, both human and divine. The Bible is full of stories of deep human relationships that are blessed by God. There are these beautiful moments of poetry in the Old Testament that show us the importance of human attachment. I'm going to share three. So Ruth says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything, but death separates you and me. And that's interesting because I think that's used in marriage vows often, but it's not actually about a marriage relationship. It's a, it's a family or kind of friendship. Then there's the lament David wrote for his friend, Jonathan. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women, which is pretty wonderful. <laughs> in these examples, we see a, a high value for family and for friendship. The Song of Songs reminds us of the beauty and goodness of romantic love. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. It's jealousy 
unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. That's attachment language there. So we see that God gives us family, friends, and marriage as partial answers to the problem of Adam's original aloneness. We reflect God's love and how we love each other, as John makes clear in the passage that we read. We also learn what God's love looks like from each other. So in the New Testament, the church is given the responsibility of showing the world what God's steadfast love looks like. Over and over, Paul uses the image of the human body to represent the church, a metaphor that involves very literal attachment. What could be more attached or inter interdependent than the parts of our body? Well, that sounds pretty great. <laughs> but of course, we have a big problem because we're sinful and broken. We often do a terrible job at reflecting God's love. <laughs> we use and hurt each other. We let other people take from us without boundaries. We experience rejection and abandonment. Unlike God, humans are not always steadfast in their love. And sometimes the people who are supposed to be the most steadfast are the ones who inflict the most pain on us. Anyone who's been abandoned by a parent or a spouse knows the deep damage that this can do to their very sense of identity and worth. We can also get into these unhealthy cycles where we're consumed by each other and these kind of scenarios can happen with family, friends, and in romantic relationships. And Christian community, which is supposed to be a source of healing, can be a place where some people become more wounded instead. These sorts of experiences can teach us not to trust other people. Some people reject God as well, but others say, I only need God. And this is what Sam Jolman, um, who's a counselor, calls spiritualized self-protection. Spiritualized self-protection. We know that others will disappoint us, so we withhold the vulnerable parts of ourselves and we cloak it in Christian language. We may feel ashamed for being so weak as to need others. We tell ourselves we shouldn't hope for too much, that people will always let us down. And on one level, this is true. Only God remains unchanging in his love. But just because there's a risk of hurt doesn't mean the risk isn't worth taking at the right time. Even Jesus made himself vulnerable to rejection and loss in human relationships. It's interesting that he formed these close friendships. He could have just been a general, like, you know, type, therapist type, that, that it was only one direction. But he actually formed close friendships and with people that he clearly really loved. Um, and he knew his friends would one day abandon him. He had such a deep love for Martha, Mary, and Lazarus that he wept over a death he was about to reverse. He could have had fellowship with only God in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he asked his friends to keep watch with him, even though he knew that they would fail to stay awake. Why did he want his friends there? He wanted them nearby when he was suffering. So Jesus showed himself willing to receive hospitality and care from all sorts of people. We read about Zacchaeus on Monday, a tax collector, when he said, I must come to your house today. Um, even people who misunderstood him or ultimately rejected him. So if Jesus isn't above human attachment, I don't think that we can be. This is not to say that we should have no boundaries in how we love. We have to be careful about whom we attach to. As a student at Libri so helpfully pointed out to me once, 
we are not Jesus. <laughs> we can't read people's hearts or know what they'll do. So just because we have a strong initial connection with someone or someone is in a position of leadership doesn't necessarily mean they're safe. The strong feelings of attachment can be misleading to us. We should test over time whether someone is trustworthy and worthy of our attachment. But there is always a point where we are going to need to trust without complete knowledge of someone else. If you have been really hurt, this is scary to do. But if you've been hurt by people, part of your healing is going to come through people too. This has definitely been the case for me. Like most people who spent any length of time in the church, I've been hurt by some things in my church experience. But I have also found deep healing through church community. I believe a lot in, in, in the healing that that can bring because I've experienced that. Uh, my pastor and others have sat with me while I cried and expressed my fears and doubts. Um, opening up like that really involved a lot of anxiety for me at first uh, because I felt that I had to keep things together and I couldn't show those things um, because if I did, everyone would leave. But it became easier over time. When I started working on my attachment patterns, I was really blessed to find a great counselor who embodied God's love and attunement as she sat with me and walked with me through the ups and downs. And definitely here at Labrie, I've experienced both the challenging and the healing aspects of human attachment. Supernaturally restored relationships are a possibility through Jesus, and we should continue to hope and to pray for that. Other people will disappoint and even wound us, and that's something to grieve. We will lose relationships sometimes, but this is not a call for retreat from attachment. Rather, we should hold to our primary attachment of abiding in Christ, and from that security, risk being vulnerable with others. So a child with a secure attachment to her primary caregiver is actually able to engage with new things in her environment without fear. Infants actually explore more when their primary caregiver is present because they feel safe. And this is the same for us with God. When we have a secure attachment with God, we no longer need to put so much pressure on those around us to reassure us or to give us space. Our identity is held secure in God. And this is, we can even forgive other people who have wounded us because we don't have to enact judgment or to be crushed by others' judgment of us. We can trust all of this to God. And forgiveness is a, a huge sign of, that someone is securely attached. We should approach community and human relationships without romanticism or cynicism, two sides of the same coin. No one person is able to meet all our needs for connection, not even God. And we will let each other down. God is our most important source of love, our secure base. But we also need to let God's love move us toward vulnerability and trust for other people. God teaches us how to love others and others teach us how to love God. It's both. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. So John tells us that we can't love God without loving one another. And this isn't because we're trying to earn God's love by loving others. It's because it's the fabric of reality. This is how love works. Love between the members of the Trinity overflows into love for us. And our love for God and his love for us overflows into love for others. We don't have to grasp and clutch and hold on to whatever love we have because there's always more in Jesus. Okay. So... How we give and receive love in our human relationships is a huge part of how we learn to give and to receive God's love. But what about a direct communication with God? And this is the last section. 
we've talked about the theological basis for God's attachment with us. That's the doctrinal knowledge. But how do we work on our experiential knowledge? There's a lot of things we can look at and I don't have much time, but I wanna talk briefly about just two, which are honest communication and resting in God. So one of the hallmarks of secure attachment style is clear communication. One who honestly communicates her feelings risks being vulnerable and known. One who responds with his own vulnerability and reassurance demonstrates the ability to be close without anxiety. So how do we find this kind of communication in our relationship with God? Well, we see that God has first revealed himself by communicating with us. He's given us his word and his son. God wants us to know how he thinks and feels. And he's honest about his longing, sorrow, and anger over people rejecting him. He's not just a stoic God who's unaffected by our actions. And he's not an unknown God whom we have to guess how to please. God doesn't pull any punches in communicating what he wants of us. Jesus spells out the, the cost of taking up our cross and following him. We don't have to read the fine print. He's not manipulating us. The choice is ours. God also invites us to communicate honestly with him. There are times where God may seem absent or even hurtful. We see that throughout the Psalms, Job, Ecclesiastes, the prophets, and in many other examples in the Bible, um, there are humans whom God loves and has chosen openly expressing their doubts, their anger, their fear. I love those places in the Bible. And I mean, many people struggle with them, but the reason that this is a faithful response is that these people bring all their reactions to God and they trust him to bear them well. A healthy relationship allows us to express our insecurities while recognizing that our feelings may not show the full picture. So even when we feel uncertain at the core, we still trust what we know of the other. In the Psalms, we see that David and others pour out their darkest feelings, but they regularly remind themselves, put your hope in the Lord for you will yet praise him. And I think we can be honest with God in a different way than maybe we need to tell other people every single thought we have about their rel our relationship with them because God is perfect and he can take that. So being honest in prayer is essential for building secure attachment with God. That's how we discover that God can handle everything that we're ashamed of or afraid to say. And then we allow God to speak truth back to us. We don't get defensive and shut down in shame. We practice hearing his voice as loving rather than threatening. We remind ourselves that Christ is in us and that we can't be separated from his love. So honest communication is one part of practicing secure attachment with God, but like any healthy relationship, we shouldn't be talking all the time. I love talking. <laughs> That's why I'm up here. Uh, but sometimes with God, I think I just keep talking because I'm afraid that he's not going to meet me in the silence. I said the other day that silence can actually feel more vulnerable to me than sharing. Sitting silently with God can be scary at first. You might feel like you need to perform. You might feel disappointed that you're not experiencing what you hoped, but learning to rest with God is an essential part of secure attachment. And what uh, a passage that's been very helpful for me in, in understanding this is Psalm 131. It's a very short one, um, but it, it really simply and beautifully expresses secure attachment with God. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have stilled and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Can you hear that attachment language here? This is a mother and infant metaphor. 
the most basic human attachment. David has learned to trust and to rest in his relationship with God, even when things around him seem chaotic and, or don't make sense, which he experienced much of physical danger. He trusts God will meet his needs at the right time. David's security extends outward to God's people, whom he invites to experience that security too. Oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, but now and forevermore. Not just for a moment, but forevermore. But just knowing these good things about God can still feel abstract when we're struggling with trust. We're physical beings who experience attachment on a physical level. Like I said, our attachment systems that are monitoring our closeness or disconnect from other people. And our bodies react with anxiety to situations that make us afraid. Well, a calming environment can signal to us that we're safe. So <laughs> this may seem not very spiritual, but in our relationship with God, we can help ourselves move into trust by paying attention to our physical posture and our surroundings. And having a concrete ritual that calms us and focuses us on God can be really helpful. Um, for me, that's when so, um, some things like lighting a candle and then from someone, someone in our church who's kind of a spiritual director um, and sitting on a, the back stairs with my morning coffee, just listening to the birds, that really helps me to, to, to be calm and to be present. Um, or to go for a long walk. Those are those are ways that I really like to spend time with God because they're all things that partly help me on a physical level to to calm and to be present. Um, and and because I already enjoy those things, they signal to me that God is a secure and a good place to be. I know Donna, you, you like to kneel at the that, uh, window seat upstairs, and Julia likes to get up early before the kids and Clark are creating havoc and and have some quiet uh, moments. So. To still and quiet your soul isn't just a cognitive action, but it's a physical one as well. When we make space for God, we can trust that he's with us, regardless of how well we perform. In a secure relationship, we don't need to constantly be analyzing everything. We can just chill and enjoy each other's company. You may notice that your relationships shift as they become more secure, where you don't always have to think about what the other person is thinking of you, and you can just be still hanging out doing ordinary things. Um, we don't have to say the right thing for God to be with us. When we don't have words, we can simply rest with God, knowing that he loves us. We can trust who God is, even when we don't know all his reasons for doing what he does. It's really hard to cut against the distractions that we face daily. I find that hard to ignore my phone. But learning to rest and to be still with God is where we can finally learn who we are in him and know this reality of the union with Christ and his spirit at work in us. I can truly say that I've experienced deep change in the way I relate to and attach with both God and others. It was important for me to give this lecture. I really wanted to share it because I didn't think that this was possible. I honestly didn't think it was possible. Um, but God has really helped me to attach securely to him and to grow in my trust. It's not perfect. I don't think it ever will be perfect, but it's very different from how it used to be. I found attachment theory to be such a helpful way of thinking in my relationships, both human and divine. And so I hope that tonight I've given you a framework to start thinking about these things too. And I'm not saying that this is the be all and all of everything, but I think it's, it's an important thing to think about. Um, if you start to look at your attachment style, I guarantee that you that it will shed light on your relationship with God. I believe that our relationship with God and our relationship with others are totally intertwined. It's a chicken and egg situation. Do others teach us how to love and be loved by God or does God teach us how to love and be loved by others? Well, it's both. In finding secure attachment, we can learn to grow in trust for both God and for people. 
we can take the risk to trust our friends and family, knowing that when they let us down, and we will, we can always return to our secure base in God. God knows us and has chosen us. We don't have to earn his love. He loves us first, and we respond in gratitude. Even if we lose a close relationship, we have a home to return to that can't be shaken by any storm. For I am convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Okay, that's where I'm going to end. And this is our time to have some conversation. Josh, I'd probably see that hand. Yes, yes, that's your hand. Um, so how would you, along these lines, and passing through things that um, respond to the phenomenon of, say, Mother Teresa's letter for the problem. And I'm actually pretty sure you're familiar with this, but for the room, um, the one of the things that was revealed when uh, Mother Teresa's confidential letters to her priest mentor came to light. What they revealed was this sort of psychological tormenting to a person who was basically struggling deeply with the issue of divine hiddenness. Mm -hmm. The idea that, you know, mm -hmm. they, they're basically God wasn't there, there was no sort of, there was no connection at all. It, it, mm -hmm. Her life was just one of doom and gloom and darkness. Um, and yet, you know, in popular culture, Mother Teresa is sort of considered to be the sort of pinnacle of any secular center. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so how would you, you know, I think that's a very striking mm -hmm. contrast in the sense that that's very much the, 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 the poverty message of Jesus mm -hmm. was very much embodied in her, and yet, Mm -hmm. the, the sort of spiritual, mm -hmm. psychological poverty is there right. at a level that you would just think that doesn't fit. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a great example. I have her book up, the book of those yeah. letters on my shelf. Actually, I don't know if you that. Um, yeah, <laughs> you knew what I was thinking. Of. And I think I, I got that book when I when I was kind of going through. You know, well, I want to say something similar to Mother Teresa, but you know, own, my own kind of dark night of the soul type thing. Um, and and I mean, of course, we get those stories all over the place, you know, whether it's um, in the Bible or you know, like or in um, or in the lives of the saints or uh, people that we know. Um, and I think each one of us will experience periods where God seems quite absent. Now, Mother Teresa's is pretty outstanding, but it was most of her life, and she had this kind of initial experience that was a call. <laughs> she felt very strongly from God. And then a, a long period of darkness was kind of one month, I think, of, of uh, relief. Um, maybe the Catholics in there can correct me if I'm wrong. But, uh, but yeah, I think that's, that's um, an important, those are important things to grapple with. And I think uh, the, yeah, the way that Mother Teresa made sense of that and the way that I would make sense of that, I, I mean, there's a lot of that that still feels mysterious to me. You know, she felt like she was really joining in Christ's suffering in some way in that experience of, of God's absence. Um, and that was kind of like where she made peace with that. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know it super deeply. Um, but I think for me, I 
yeah, so it may be a hard one to sort of give like an overarching uh, answer to, but I, I still don't have an extremely experiential relationship with God in the way that many people seem to express that um, in terms of like, oh, these, like all these feelings of love or consolation or whatever, stuff like that. So people seem to have different experiences that way. Why? I don't exactly know. Um, and, and different seasons, you know, where, where they experience God differently or, or seem to not experience God at all. But I think that um, my imagination has been expanded about what it means for God to be present. Um, and I think that for me, the anxiety of, of sort of using my own feelings as a rubric for whether God is present or not and with me or not, um, that has changed a lot in part through this, this kind of stuff to say like God is already securely attached with me even when I'm not like having all these charismatic experiences or something that I don't have to try and, and like, um, you know, be, be like a baby trying to get its mother's attention, you know, essentially. So there's, there's like the, the lack of anxiety is like a great place to start. <laughs> um, so I think things will, will change. Like I have no idea where my relationship will, with God will go over, you know, over the course of my life. And I'm sure there's people who interpret that Mother Teresa story like all different ways. Maybe it was depression. Maybe it was, who knows? I don't really know exactly what was going on there, but I know that there was still a journey with God and there were still beautiful things that God was clearly doing through her life. I think ways in which she did experience God's consolation, even if the, like that feeling of closeness wasn't there. Um, but it's a, it's, uh, yeah, I don't want to give like thin answers to thick questions because I think that that, um, and anyone who's in like the dark night of the soul, you can hear people say all <laughs> these kind of things, but I don't think there's like a quick fix for that. Um, and, and again, I would say like this attachment stuff is something that's really helped me, but I don't know that that's what will get everybody <laughs> out of a dark night of the soul. Um, and yeah, some people seem temperamentally to just go through a lot more of that type of thing too. Um, so yeah, I, it's, there's not a quick fix for, for those kind of desert things. I, mean, I, I think I experienced that for many, many years, um, maybe not to that level, but a lot of spiritual anxiety and sort of felt absence of God and why did it happen in that way for me and not for certain others. And why did it have the time stamp that it did? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. There's some, and that, and that, so that's something I kind of just have to trust God with and say, okay. Um, it, but yeah, I don't, I don't want to, you know, want to give an easy answer to something that seems very complex to me. Um, I don't know if that's, you know, if anyone else has thoughts on that. Um, Thanks, Maria. Yeah. Um, when it comes to the dark night of the soul, which um, Mother mm -hmm. um, Teresa would classify as um, living not just a period, but a whole long period of the dark night of the soul. And then um, St. John of the Cross, who's um, considered the master of mystical theology. Um, talks of the dark night and and how it's it's not like a negative like that's a problem that needs to be mm -hmm. fixed like it's not like she had she had a lack of faith um, mm -hmm. that she didn't see God but it was actually because God was purifying her faith to allow that to happen so 
And it doesn't indicate a fourth fractional actually, I think, in my opinion, indicates actually insanely deep attachment mm -hmm. where God can actually be, if you consider him like the image of a parent, mm -hmm. um, he might, like, say you're sitting there, he might go behind you and all you feel and experience is the lack of his presence. But the understanding is actually he's closer to us than we actually know mm -hmm. and feel and experience. But God is around our external senses, even our intellect, our will, our memory, all of our faculties of soul being in darkness in order so that faith can be purified, which leads to God. So it's it's a dark knowing of God, um, which is difficult to understand. But that's kind of how we would be Maria's just for those on Zoom, Maria's commenting about the Catholic understanding of the dark night of the soul. Um, and the idea that it's not it's not indicative of insecure attachment, but um, is rather a way of purifying your faith when God sort of withdraws in like the felt sense of his presence. Um, that that's a chance for you to, to trust God in a different way um, and to learn to trust God in a different way. And yeah, and that's kind of, I think it's a, I mean, to be interested in knowing more about that theology of Red Sun and St. John of the Cross, but um, how, how that goes with this. I mean, yeah, I think it could lead to a deeper attachment. When, when do you know when like what is, what is coming up is actually like your insecure attachment and when is it a dark, dark night of the soul? Um, I'd be, I, I, I'd have to think more about the distinction between <laughs> what those two are um, and when it seems like it's more damaging than, <laughs> than helpful or something, you know, because uh, yeah, I, I can see that many people have expressed that um, going through this period that feels like desert is really when they grow much closer to God. Um, so yeah, I, would, I wouldn't want to discount that. Um, but yeah, Mother Teresa's case is, a, is quite a striking example of a very, very prolonged um, season of that, which seems you know, unusual. So, but thank you for sharing that. It's really helpful context. Brett. My, expect, my perspective is that there is a sense where knowing the truth, which is in a sense analytical, mm -hmm. you've got stories in the Bible, your own experience, but it also turns over and changes to be intuitive, mm. which you kind of intuitively know the truth. Mm. And that even though you don't feel God, you have that deep knowledge yeah. that it's true and that he's true. Right. And that, that's my experience. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where that relational aspect comes, like, you know, I mean, the covenantal thing, like I was talking about that. You know, in a marriage, for example, I'm not married, but <laughs> so I hear like it's the you don't always feel love. It's sometimes hard to trust the other person, but you kind of you have this bond where you can sometimes you have to cognitively tell yourself like this other person is there for me. There's other times where it's more intuitively easier, but um, yeah. So like, there's lots of times where you know it doesn't matter how secure your relationship with God is, you're still going to struggle with feeling insecure. <laughs> um, and and I think there's times where you have to. Walking um, that space, <laughs> that space, yeah. But I don't. I I think for most of us, it isn't just 
completely dry. Uh, that's uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it out and then I am hoping that it's what I remember exactly. So I mean this the book attached said basically 50% of people are secure. So and then like I don't know what the split is between anxious and avoidant um, exactly. And it probably I would imagine it probably is a bit culturally dependent. Um, there's some gender correlation as well. Uh, so. So yeah, I'm not. It depends, I guess, what population you're talking about there exactly. Are a lot of people. There are a significant number of people who, who don't struggle mm -hmm. with it as well. Right. As a right. But they're the ones who get married early, so that's. Which ones get married early? The secure attachers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not to not to knock everyone else who's still single, but it is. It, I mean, according to this book, anyway, it's like the the farther the longer you go on, it tends to be people who are more anxiously attached to us, still kind of at large because <laughs> they have more trouble holding down the relationship at large. You know? <laughs> um, but and it and it can help you to become more secure, whether it's in a dating relationship or a romantic relationship or whatever friendships. Um, people in your church community or other communities that that are secure in the way that they attach and relate that can really help you to grow in that and I've definitely experienced that as well um, as well as like sometimes when you have a close relationship with someone who's a really anxious attachments or avoidant attachment style it can like make you feel like you're all of a sudden crazy <laughs> and you're like where did that come from um, and so so yeah other people can definitely have some impact on their own attachment style even if it's just like for a period you know um, yeah, I'd have to look up more statistics to answer it more fully than that. I was just wondering because, like, yeah, the rock and roll of people who are secure is yeah. the thing ones who yes. are going to think about like, things that you can do mm -hmm. for yourself mm -hmm. as an insecure or avoidant yeah. type. But, yeah. But, like, for the ones who are, who don't have as much of an issue there, like, like within the church, whatever should we be looking out? I mean, I'm probably not the one with the secure attachment style. Uh, <laughs> but um, should those who are be like looking for ways to help mm. people who have these issues, or is that just Tim's asking yeah. about whether people who have a secure attachment style should kind of be looking out for people that they can help who are less secure? Um, Yes, and but at the same time, it puts a huge burden on people who are secure. I think it's a, you know if they're if they're the ones who always have to to you know help people who are insecure. So that's why I want to emphasize that that is like primarily our responsibility to work on those things, and that we do that through relationship with other people. But there's a difference in being responsible to and responsible for. Um, so you know, responsible to the people in our lives to to help them. Uh, but not responsible for their emotions. So I think it's 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 easy and you can see all those needs um, to to start to take those on, and that's where people's um, secure attachment style can start to become insecure because they're taking on so much of someone else's stuff. Uh, so I think that's where community again is really helpful because you're not bearing all that weight yourself. Um, and you know, even in a, a marriage or romantic relationship, I think when you get one person who's really insecure. The secure person can't just fix all of those problems and they 
they need a larger community to help that person. So I think that's a big issue in our society right now is that um, so much pressure tends to go onto the romantic relationship to kind of solve all of these attachment issues that people have. And, and then they get really frustrated when that doesn't happen. And the other person gets, is dysfunctional too, because it really, really requires a lot more people um, than just that one. And it's the person, you know, it's it's our own responsibility to, to look for those relationships um, and, to, and to talk to ourselves and, and, you know, like try and communicate clearly and tell ourselves the truth in the relationship. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, I think we need, it, it, it does take some self-awareness to say like, am I really in a secure place where I can give something to someone else right now? Or do I have too much stuff going on for me that like me trying to help everybody else is just gonna um, make me sink, you know? So, I mean, hopefully, hopefully you have like somewhat secure people in church leadership, but that doesn't always happen. <laughs> no, definitely not always. Um, but we also, but I mean, I think it's, I think it's great. That's not really like a personality typing system in terms of like, you can grow into secure attachment. It's not like you're stuck in this one, even if you may have a default, you don't have to just stay there. Um, so it's kind of hopeful. <laughs> Ryle. I'm curious. Uh, Ryle's asking about like crisis of fatherhood and how it plays into this and I, I haven't heard that exact phrase in real relationship to attachment theory but attach like we, we attach God, God the father yeah I mean I think that's so so much of how we see God I think is related to how we see how we experience our parents our primary caregivers um, and so I think we typically we talk about that using you know, father, like about the father, God the father, because it's a language we're given in scripture. Um, although there's some other images as well. And, and yeah, very many people have a very damaged, wounded relationship with their father. And your father is an attachment figure, you know, if, if he's present. Um, so even though your mother is like the first one, your father is also a very important attachment figure um, who, who has some different roles than your mother. And, you know, there's like a kind of a differentiation that happens like with an infant, they don't know that they're different than their mother. They think that they're exactly the same as their mother. Um, and so that, that's a very close bond. But their father is kind of the first person that they typically relate to outside of their mother. So there, there's something kind of different that happens there. Um, so yeah, the wounds may be different also. Um, I, you know, yeah, I think it's important to emphasize that there can be damage in, on, in both of those relationships because I, I've kind of heard it mostly actually talked about the father, the father wound, that's a phrase that I often have heard, um, which is, you know, can be a very deep one, but there's also a mother wound as well. And that, um, that God can, can meet both of those places. Um, so yeah, I'd have to think more about how attachment kind of differs with those two. It's not something I've thought a, a whole bunch about. Um, but I think that we really do see a crisis in our society of, of of attachment not having secure attachment figures and I, I don't, I'm just kind of verbal processing this now but I do wonder about um, so many kids growing up with single mothers particularly who are working and that they, they're not you know just to, to spend a lot of time with their primary attachment um, figures not that it's wrong for women to work <laughs> but just but just in terms of that they may not whether it's a dad at home or a mother like just not get as much time one-on-one -on -one. um so 
yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm not really answering your question very well. Maybe you have some um, another thought about that that's coming to mind. Um, um, it's more of a, a theoretical okay. level. Yeah. So are you tracing, are you saying that the, that us thinking of God as father is is some is is a problem or uh, I'm, I'm not quite clear. Yeah, maybe this is too much. <laughs> okay. But uh, well, I'm curious. I'm actually yeah. I'm curious if Brett, Brett has a thought on this because I know we've talked some about the the mother and father relationship, and, and I guess some theories on that. So. Yeah, I've been very helped by Leanne Payne's thinking. She was a uh, very involved, a great thinker. C.S. Lewis, a scholar with a background in psychology. So her teaching was basically C.S. Lewis put into practice, but she was very very strong on the relationship with our parents, both male and female, mother and father. And she wrote a book, The Crisis in Masculinity, which I think is available. I think it's probably here. It's, and that really changed my life a whole lot because what lies behind this, your talk is um, the, often the breakdown with our relationship with our mothers who give us a sense of being. It's good to be alive. Right? And that's kind of the basis of, of healthy attachment. But our fathers, Give us a sense of well-being. It's good to be who you are. And our fathers help differentiate us from our mothers, that we're not the center of the universe. We have other responsibilities and so on. And, and I think that's why God is depicted mainly as, uh, as, a, as a father figure, which was a unique teaching of Jesus. This was not a teaching before Jesus. God was the father of the nation maybe a couple of times in the Old Testament. But he's hundreds of times, well, dozens of times, he refers to God as Father. So it's, it's right at the heart. And I think it has to do with the fact that even though God is also acting in a motherly way towards us, he kind of calls us out of nature, not against nature, but out of nature to be independent beings. And we can stand up straight. He calls us to stand up straight. As fathers help us to call, call ourselves to stand up straight and not bent towards our mothers and, and ourselves and so on, God helps us uh, straighten up, so to speak. Anyway, that's, that's been my help from, from the end thing. So. That's very interesting. It's very fascinating because um, the absent father is very predictive for, not so much for girls, but for boys growing up, that if there's an absent father, it's very likely to have a hard time getting started in life. Like, launching out into the world, hmm. developing a career and whatever. It's like, um, that, which I always thought is like, well, that's that's kind of weird. Like what difference should that make? Like whether somebody wants to do that, but there's kind of a different attitude of father hmm. than a mother. It's like the mother often stereotype and everything, but it's often wanting to protect and the father's like, you know, get out there and do something, right? You're big enough, like go ahead. Come on, get up there. You know, there's a different kind of attitude, but like not pushing them too hard. You know, it's in balance. You kind of know their limits, but the father's like, you know, you're you're more than this. You can do more. You know, come on, you know, get going. Because <laughs> they they there's sort of this this belief in their their kids, right? Mm -hmm. they, they see the potential, okay. and the mothers, because well, it's especially protective when they're very young. But that whole psychology is there. You know, like, 
I'm sure that's kind of a little bit more of a that direction on the yeah, we're just talking about uh, mother and father roles and and how that relates to kids uh, properly developing, and I think that sort of relates to this both like the uh, independence and interdependence kind of thing. So like that is that first year where the attachment style is really formed typically, um, and so that is like usually primarily with the mother. Um, but then, like I said, we also have this need for independence, and so that it may be, you know, that our, our fathers tend to encourage that um, sort of growing into our independent qualities. But if you don't have the secure base of the safe connection with your mother, then whatever independence you have is still going to have this lack of trust underneath of it. So, um, so I think you kind of, you need, and I mean, it's not necessarily just a mother, but, you know, generalizations, as you said, <laughs> uh, but I think there's some, some helpful pattern in there. So Tony, Tony, I think you were just saying that, uh, you know, we talk about the wounds that we had from our parents and how those shape our attachment styles. Um, or, or sometimes there's good parenting and you end up securely attached too. <laughs> um, and, and, but that, that it's not just, you know, that our parents also have these wounds <laughs> that they have experienced. And so it's not just like, you know, our parents trying to be mean to us or something, but that they all, we, we also need to be compassionate and understanding that they have their own attachment issues often or other wounds. Um, and I think that's really helpful. So I think when we, whenever we look at things from our past, like the point is not just to blame somebody else and not take any responsibility for ourselves. Um, it's really so that we can find healing. And so I think that people um, can get mired down in whatever system or framework it is and say like, I don't have any responsibility to change because it's, it's you know, my parents, mess me up or my church or whatever um and instead of saying okay yes that's really true there was some there were some deep wounds there but now i choose to extend compassion and forgiveness towards that person while recognizing like you can't forgive something that you don't know what it is so you recognize like oh these are the ways that i was hurt but i'm choosing to forgive those and let them go and they don't have that power over me that said like those things can still continue to, to shape us. So like forgiveness is one step in the, in the healing journey. It's not the whole step. Um, so yeah, so I think that uh, they're, they're, that is a part of you know healing in your relationship with your parents and able to really forgive and recognize like, yeah, they weren't given everything that they, they needed either. Uh, and if I am ever a parent, I'm sure I'll make lots of mistakes in my own parenting. And, uh, and, and they, they just say that, um, with it building secure attachment in your kids because this might make you feel like if you don't have kids like I should never have kids because I'll mess it up but you only actually need to get it right like 50% of the time to have secure attachment so that's like pretty good odds <laughs> uh, and and also that it's not like I said it's not so much about that that the rupture never happens that you never have conflict or there's never separation but it's about how you repair mm -hmm. so so yeah so much of it isn't in the repair when you have that that separation um so yeah, and you know, people are resilient too. And, you know, even if we all, you know, may have like slight attachment issues, um, we're, it's possible to work through those things. And, and you know, but, so it's not the end of the story and um, we don't wanna just be defined by, by our wounds either, you know? Hey. That kind of leads into my questions. Like I know you shared some research around obviously being able to tell what someone's attachment style is, is there, and are there any studies that show that possibility of changing your attachment style from an insecure to a secure one? 
I'm sure there are. I just can't <laughs> tell okay. you what they are. Right <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know off the top of my head, but I just, I know that there is quite a bit of research around this, and uh, you know, especially in it seems like in, in you know those primary romantic relationships where someone changes to become more secure or insecure if the other person's oh, really true. insecure too, so that it can those can shift. And as you have positive experiences, it starts to kind of retrain your brain to be like, oh, it, it is safe to trust somebody else. They're not necessarily going to leave me um, or consume me. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I don't, I'd have to look more to find an uh, actual study, but I'm sure you could Google it and find something. There's lots of stuff out there. I just read the book. Yeah, or read the book, yeah. Mm -hmm. Any other comments or questions? We can talk more afterwards too, so. Great. Okay. Well, thank you everyone so much for coming out and I'd be happy to talk more with you. Um, thank you.